Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This week on TNR, we're going to again feature a replay of Room Now Live 2023, the pod on the evolution and advances in vasculitis. Many thanks to the sponsors of this session, Sanofi, uh, for supporting medical education, especially on vasculitis. This session was a good one. It features three great speakers talking about testing, diagnosing, and treating things that we commonly see. First, we're going to hear an excerpt from Dr. Robert Spira from Hospital for Special Surgery talking about new therapies for PMR and GCA. Second, we'll hear from Anisha Dua from Northwestern who'll talk about the assessment of patients with GCA and PMR. And lastly, Carol Langford from the Cleveland Clinic talking about what she knows best, GPA treatments, and what to choose. Hope you like this session. Tell your colleagues about next week where we're going to have another pod review, this time on spondyloarthritis. Listen up for these great, three great lectures. Be sure to ask your questions and we'll handle those at the end. Uh, with important clinical outcomes. So there have been many trials, and I said recent, but this is really over the last 20 years um, in GCA. I'll talk a little bit about some of them, but a lot of this is in the syllabus. Um, I should mention there was a negative well-done trial with infliximab. I won't talk about that, but I'll mention some of the other ones. Um, so I want to parenthetically almost mention the aspirin issue. Because this comes up, it's actually been provisionally, I think, endorsed or conditionally endorsed in the ACR guidelines. Um, there's no prospective studies looking at this, but there's two well-done retrospective studies, um, and the references are in there, um, where they looked at people presenting with GCA and just said, do these patients have cranial ischemic complications or not? Did they present with blindness or a stroke? And then went back and looked at their medics and saw that if you happened to be on aspirin at the time of presentation, you were less likely to present with damage. So I don't know that this will ever be prospectively studied, but I often add um, an aspirin a day, especially if somebody's presenting with cranial ischemic complications or even threatening things like, like jaw claudication, and there's no contraindications. Well, what about methotrexate as a steroid sparing agent? I'm just curious. I know we don't do hand raises here, but do many people here use methotrexate in this disease? It looked like less do than I might have um, anticipated. Um, but there were three trials, two of which were negative. Um, the negative trials, which included one we led, used a low dose of methotrexate, only a median dose of about 8.5 milligrams a week. The best done trial was Gary Hoffman's trial, which was a multi-center trial called the INSYS trial, looked at a good dose of methotrexate, 15 milligrams a week, and showed no benefit whatsoever to the addition of methotrexate. And in this trial, by the way, they used an alternate day steroid taper. And the main lesson from this trial is don't use an alternate day steroid taper in this disease. They had a 13.8% rate of new vision loss in that trial. Um, but then uh, Alf, Alf, Alfred Marr did an individual patient meta-analysis. So you take the individual data from all of these trials and do it as if it was one big trial and was able to demonstrate that patients with GCA, if you add me methotrexate, there is some reduction in the risk of a first or second flare and some reduction of cumulative steroid exposure, 
but was not able to show any difference between in, in outcomes in terms of ischemic outcomes or steroid-related adverse events. And you would have to treat about 11 patients to um, prevent one relapse uh, in a cranial relapse. So there's limitations to this. I would say I don't routinely do this. And I will. one of my um, mentorship moments was Gary Hoffman not being an author on this trial because he felt one well-done prospective trial is better than a retrospective meta-analysis, and it was a lesson that stuck with me. Um, this is a trial that actually our, uh, the speaker after next was the lead author on, was a trial of abatacept in GCA. And abatacept worked. This was a trial where patients were randomized to abatacept. Actually, everyone got abatacept for a few months, the intravenous dosing regimen, and then some patients were randomized to receive placebo subsequently and some to active drug, and patients um, were less likely to flare if they had been treated with abatacept. So there's rationale for IL-6 inhibition in GCA and PMR. In the interest of time, I'm going to not dwell on this, but there's good rationale in both disorders. And the JIACTA study was the pivotal study that led to the approval of, of uh, tocilizumab for GCA. The complicated design, four groups of patients. One group had a standard sort of one-year steroid taper and placebo. One year had a rapid uh, steroid taper to 26 weeks plus placebo. One group got tocilizumab every other week plus a 26-week taper. And one group got tocilizumab every week and a 26-week taper. And there was clearly a benefit to treatment with active tocilizumab. So the groups of patients who were randomized to placebo, only about 15% of them reached this uh, outcome of sustained remission, meaning reaching remission by week 12 and then remaining in remission for the next 52 weeks. And complementary to that is the steroid use, not surprisingly, cumulatively was much lower in the group randomized to tocilizumab. So it was approved for use in this population, um, and I think it's an adjunct, and it's a useful adjunct to what we do. Um, so there was acceptable safety, there was a good steroid-sparing benefit, but I always go back to this slide, which was in a, a, a case series by John Stone and Sebastian Unizoni, where they demonstrated this was a patient with GCA that was refractory, had failed cyclophosphamide, was stuck on like 10 or 15 milligrams of prednisone, and with tocilizumab went into very much a remission and got down to 3 milligrams of prednisone. So in that context, she went for an elective surgical procedure and died of a myocardial infarction. And at the time of surgery, she had rip-roaring vasculitis in every vascular bed. So are we treating the inflammatory manifestations but not vasculopathy? And it's something we really have to think about. And we don't know how long to treat these patients for. Um, I do want to say that the suppression of the sed rate in CRP to me is a big negative of, of tocilizumab in GCA because especially in somebody who's lost vision already in one eye, I rely much more on the sed rate and CRP in that population, and losing them, which is really our only reliable marker, biomarker, is, is complicated. So the way I approach the patient is I assess their phenotype, risk of steroids, always use a high dose of steroids up front. I try to taper to zero by month six. I do use tocilizumab early in most patients and generally with aspirin, and I do not routinely use methotrexate up front. Um, I consider clinical trials, and there are some good ones ongoing, and in refractory disease, I will think about methotrexate or, or abatacept. There's also a small trial that was done with secukinumab, which showed benefit.
So I'm going to do this case quickly. This is a patient with polymyalgia rheumatica, um, six-week history of symptoms, um, presents with elevated acute phase reaction, uh, reactants, did have a history of a compression fracture and type 2 diabetes. Um, so would you start prednisone 30 daily with a taper, 20 milligrams daily with a taper, 15 milligrams daily with a taper, or would you add methotrexate with either 20 or 15 milligrams of prednisone, or would you add an IL-6 inhibitor such as tocilizumab or Actemra, um, I'm sorry, or cerilumab. So th this is interesting too. More people are you know, considering tocilizumab. I think there is a wrong answer on this slide, and I would say the wrong answer would have been starting 30 milligrams of daily prednisone. I think the other um, approach is reasonable, but I agree I would not use methotrexate up front. Um, so our general principles, we know we want to taper steroids, um, we want to avoid their side effects, we want to pay attention to relapses, but not necessarily overreact to that. We want to use the lowest dose that adequately controls the symptoms and recognize that flares are often easily treatable. That's going to be the challenge of knowing who to use a biologic in in this disorder. And there have been other things used as, as adjunctive therapy. Again, this is in the syllabus. There are three RCTs with methotrexate, which suggested minimal benefit at best, but at longer-term follow-up, that was not sustained. There really was not clear evidence about methotrexate benefit, but I've used it in some people, wondering if they're really seronegative RA, actually. There's a very well-done trial by Carlos Salvarani of infliximab that showed no benefit whatsoever. And then some people have used uh, leflunamide. Most of us don't favor using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but they can help in some patients, not surprisingly. But there have been three RCTs with IL-6 inhibitors recently that I'll mention, and I'm running a little long, but I'll mention them relatively briefly. Um, all published, actually one was not published yet, um, the, the third study in the last year. Um, and actually, while these slides were being shipped over here um, for the talk, the FDA approved cerilumab for refractory polymyalgia rheumatica. So that's going to be an interesting landscape and in how this will insinuate itself into practice. This was the first study. This was, a, I think, an Italian study. It looked at um, a European study. It looked at nuance-set PMR. So these are patients that aren't necessarily refractory. Um, I think it was about 30-something patients. It wasn't a large trial. And patients received tocilizumab or placebo in addition to a very rapid corticosteroid taper. Um, so they were tapered off steroids at, by 11 weeks, and the primary outcome was at 16 weeks, arguably way too early to be looking at your outcome measure in this disease. But they were able to show that a much higher proportion of patients treated with tocilizumab were in remission at 12 weeks and 16 weeks. And they didn't continue the tocilizumab out to 24 weeks, but the patients remained in remission at 24 weeks, a higher percentage of them. And not surprisingly, these patients also had less corticosteroid use and less relapses almost by definition. This is a different population and a different study published in JAMA last year from the French uh, uh, group. Um, this was a study of patients, I think it was about 100 patients, with refractory PMR. So most of these patients had disease for about a year. So these were the patients we encounter in practice where we wonder about things like tocilizumab uh, um, or other strategies. And they had a complicated composite primary efficacy out 
come, which was measured at six months, at, at 26 weeks. And it was this activity score for polymyalgia rheumatica, which incorporates the CRP. Obviously, that biases it a little bit in favor of a drug that suppresses CRP. But even without that, um, the results held up. But you, would, you did not have to taper off steroids by six months. You could be on five milligrams or less of prednisone and still be considered a success. And you had to, or you had to have lowered your prednisone requirement by more than 10 milligrams from your baseline. So you could come into this study, which is unusual, needing, let's say, 16 milligrams daily of prednisone a year into your disease and taper it to six milligrams daily, and that would be a success if you had low disease activity. But you could see, and I haven't figured out my pointer, that, that you were more likely to be, um, achieve that outcome if you were on active drug. But look at the, the prednisone dose. The dose difference was trivial. So it was maybe six milligrams a day at six months in the placebo group and three milligrams a month in the active treatment group. So it's a proof of concept. And this I'll try to talk about quickly. This is the SAFR trial. This is not yet published. It was presented at, at the ACR. This was an interesting design. It looked at refractory disease. You had to have flared while still on more than 7.5 milligrams of prednisone in the prior few months. And then you were randomized to either get cerilumab every other week and a very rapid prednisone taper over 14 weeks, or placebo and a kind of conventional 52-week steroid taper. And it was a composite endpoint, but basically you needed to be, no, it was actually a sustained remission. You had to have had no disease activity by week 12, when you were down to maybe one or two milligrams of prednisone at that point, and sustain that for the duration of the study up to week 52, and adhere to your prednisone taper as protocol defined, and have a normal CRP. And the bottom line is it was a very positive trial. So it doesn't look impressive. So it was about 30% of patients on active therapy achieved that rigorous endpoint, whereas only 13% of patients on placebo did. But if you looked at sustained um, remission or absence of a disease flare, it's more than half of patients on cerulimab with a simple 14-week steroid taper. And that probably means something and could mean something clinically important in practice. Also, not surprisingly, there was less steroid use if you were randomized to cerilumab. Um, and uh, the, we're not going to talk about uh, PROs, but quality of life outcome measures favored cerilumab. So this, to me, was a meaningful outcome of the trial because we have a really hard time capturing why are patients on three milligrams of prednisone maybe not doing well or six milligrams of prednisone. They're not getting osteoporotic fractures. Maybe they have some skin fragility that isn't captured by other outcome measures. So the improvements in the um, quality of life measures, I think, was pretty important. So in terms of my approach, you know, I usually treat with methylprednisolone just because there are some patients that are refractory or respond better to methylprednisolone than prednisone. I often will give them a divided dosage, even though the guidelines don't necessarily endorse that, you know, with it front-loaded in the morning, but that helps with the morning stiffness often. Um, I target a rapid taper. I'd like to see if these patients can get off steroids within 16 weeks. Remember, almost 20% of patients in some of those trials in the placebo group got off steroids within about four months. So I'd want to be part of that 20% if I had the ability to be that, recognizing I can always raise it. And I think about glucocorticoid sparing therapy if it's refractory. 
um, or if there's glucocorticoid intolerance. And the drugs I look at are methotrexate. I don't use leflunamide or hydroxychloroquine frequently, um, but IL-6 inhibitors may be something that we'll look at more, um, limited by access issues, but that might change. So imaging in polymyalgia, ultrasound and MRI are two potential options. Ultrasound can help you detect um, this bilateral subacromial or subdeltoid bursitis. It's really good at looking at the shoulder. Um, it's less frequent, uh, it's less useful in looking at the hips and trochanteric bursa. Um, but it does increase your specificity from 81 to 91 percent. Um, when you look at those classification criteria. And if you're good at the ultrasound, you can also go look at the joints and make sure that there's not proliferative synovitis um, that is consistent with rheumatoid arthritis. It's cheap, it's accessible, but it is very highly operator dependent. MRI, on the other hand, is good at looking at the pelvic girdle tendons, and you actually can see extrasynovial involvement with edema, tendinopathy, and effusions, and you can actually see some localized myofascial involvement as well. It also responds to therapy, but this is more expensive, um, although it's reproducible. And when should you consider a pet? Uh, I mean, I guess whenever you can get it covered, which is rare. Um, but honestly, it's something that I do consider when patients are not responding to glucocorticoids and have other risk factors. Some of these PMR folks will have these systemic sort of manifestations of fevers and weight loss and just not doing well. So if they don't respond to that glucocorticoid and you're still not sure what's going on, they've got low-grade fevers, you really need to think about things like malignancy, um, and that would be one indication for trying to look, trying to get a PET scan. What would you see on the PET scan? Um, you, the typical pattern is this Y-shaped uptake, so you get uptake in those shoulder bursa, um, and then along the spine in the interspinous bursa. So again, it's helpful for looking for large vessel vasculitis, malignancies, and um, working up fevers of unknown origin that can look similar to polymyalgia rheumatica. Again, it's expensive, access is difficult. All right, so our patient responds to 15 milligrams of daily prednisone. She has complete resolution of her symptoms in two days. Her SED rate decreases to 15. Her CRP is normal. Over the next few months, uh, you wean her prednisone. She's down to seven milligrams daily and schedules an urgent follow-up visit. Now she's got three weeks of uh, new onset right-sided headache, scalp tenderness, malaise, shoulder, hip discomfort, difficulty getting out of a chair and combing her hair. She's got jaw pain when eating. Um, her vitals are normal. She doesn't have any abnormalities on her exam of her temporal arteries. Um, and she's got pain with abduction of her shoulders, some scalp tenderness, no bruise. She has elevation of her inflammatory markers and a little bit of an anemia. So what's the relationship here between polymyalgia rheumatica and GCA? Um, you know, we know that they affect similar demographics of people, and uh, about 15% of PMR patients will go on to develop GCA, so the most important thing is really asking about symptoms of GCA at each of their visits. And Dr. Spira mentioned a couple of the facts that, you know, people can have clinically standard polymyalgia rheumatica, and if you look at autopsy studies, they actually can have large vessel inflammation in, in their autopsy studies, or if you do a temporal artery biopsy, they may show some inflammation there as well that goes more along with GCA. Doesn't mean you should be biopsying all these people looking for GCA, but it is there is clearly a relationship there, and you need to be asking about um, GCA symptoms when you're seeing these folks. On the flip side, 40 to 50 percent of GCA patients will have symptoms of PMR, um, even if they come in like with the classic cranial symptoms of GCA, no PMR symptoms, their relapses actually can be PMR-type symptoms, so they are closely related. Which of the following features most significantly increases the likelihood of GCA? Headache, jaw claudication, a history of PMR, or scalp tenderness? 
Yeah, so we've got Jacques Laudication history of PMR getting the highest votes here. So, you know, when I ask fellows or colleagues, you know, what are the things you think about when you're thinking about GCA? Of course, the first things that come to mind are headaches, vision loss, right? Um, scalp tenderness. These are the things we ask about right at the beginning of our encounter with the patient. Um, but this was a meta-analysis looking at over 14,000 patients. And these categories in the yellow boxes basically didn't meet the likelihood ratio cutoff of two. So this doesn't mean that they aren't part of GCA. They are. So scalp tenderness, weight loss, vision loss, headache, fevers. These are all things you will see in your GCA patients, but they don't actually increase the likelihood of the diagnosis as much as some of the things on the right here. Um, so limb and jaw claudication uh, are significantly increased um, your risk of, or your sign, or your probability of having GCA, temporal artery abnormalities, and then um, the AION and previous diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. So what does our patient have? She has scalp tenderness, she's got a headache. Uh, she might have jaw claudication, she has a history of TMJ, that makes it a little bit difficult to tease out, and she has a previous diagnosis of PMR. So um, she also has this elevated SED rate, CRP, anemia, you'd think she has GCA. So you're gonna start her on uh, you're going to increase her prednisone to 60 milligrams daily. Now, the recommendations from the ACR and Vasculitis Foundation are that in patients with suspected GCA, we should do a temporal artery biopsy over an ultrasound for the diagnosis. The ULAR guidelines are to do an imaging study, so to do an ultrasound usually of um, the cranial arteries and then also the axillary arteries to try to make the diagnosis. Now, I underlined here that is assuming high expertise and prompt availability of this imaging technique. Some of us may have access to fast-track clinics or ultrasound at our institutions, um, and others do not. But at this point, the recommendation is to pursue a temporal artery biopsy, and that's what you decide to do in this patient. But the surgeon's not available for two weeks. So what should you tell him? I mean, you could tell him, like, I want this biopsy right now, but it's probably not a, a battle worth picking. Um, because we all know that, actually, biopsies can be positive, um, even after the initiation of steroids is longer than eight weeks. Um, but over time, you start losing some of those classic features. So lesions start evolving into this healing stage with more fibrosis, vascular remodeling, less inflammatory infiltrates. This was an older study um, that basically showed that you have the best yield if you do the biopsy in the first uh, two weeks, but you still do have positive yield even if you wait for more than a month. And this was an interesting one where they actually had biopsy-proving GCA, and they re-biopsied those patients at uh, variable time points and saw that even at a year, all, um, close to half of these patients still had positive biopsies. So um, ideally, you would get it done within two weeks of starting the oral glucocorticoids over waiting longer, but if you have high suspicion, you should just get a biopsy when you can get it. What else should you tell them? Um, to do one or both sides. The yield increases 5 to 10% if you do a bilateral biopsy, but there have been studies looking you know, at, at patients and doing bilateral biopsies, and only six out of, or like you can see the, the numbers there. But basically, a very small proportion will have unilateral arteritis. Um, so the recommendations are to do a unilateral over a bilateral temporal artery biopsy. Now, I do a unilateral biopsy if, if someone has classic manifestations, like a right-sided headache and a pretty clear uh, clinical picture of GCA. But there are cases where I'm really a little bit fuzzy, and in those cases I might get a bilateral, or they have a diffuse headache, and I'm not totally sure what's going on. In those situations, I might consider getting a bilateral biopsy. The other thing to note is that you want to get a long enough segment, because they shrink when you send them to pathology. You need your pathologist to do multiple slices, so we recommend getting more than one centimeter. You don't, the pulse is more palpable here, but you want to get the biopsy up here, um, because it avoids damage to the facial nerve. 
So what are you looking for on the biopsy? Um, you're, you basically have inflammation of the adventitia of the, of the blood vessel, right? And the inflammation's moving in, it disrupts and destroys the elastic lamina. Um, and then you start getting obliteration of your lumen, down, difficulty with blood flow, downstream ischemia, leading to your clinical manifestations of the disease. Um, so that's what you're classically looking for. And of course, it's great if you have giant cells, because it's giant cell arteritis, but that you're not always going to see them in the biopsy. And in fact, if you put 14 pathologists in a room, which this study did, and had them look at the same slides, they're going to disagree on a lot of them. So they're looking at, you know, a couple of them agreed that these patients definitely don't have GCA. A couple of them agreed that this one set, these other cases definitely did have GCA. But the majority of these, the pathologists disagreed on the interpretation of that biopsy. So we're putting a lot of weight on these pathologic diagnoses, and there is just some discrepancy here. And that becomes even more difficult when the read says something like this. Mild periadventitial inflammation, no giant cells or disruption of the internal elastic lamina, scattered areas of medial fibrosis with vascular remodeling, inconclusive for GCA. And you're going to get these results, and you're going to be like, okay, what do I, what do, I do with that? Um, so, you know, the, the classification criteria, again, when we're thinking about putting people into trials, they have been updated in 2022. Um, and you can see here that this is, again, you already have high suspicion, you've excluded your mimics. Um, some of the things that were added are uh, the PMR type of symptoms, jaw or tongue claudication, um, sudden vision loss, and I just highlighted some of the things that our patient has. But really what I wanted to focus on here is, um, you know, our patient has some of these, we're not sure if this, this biopsy could be read as positive, but really we also have to look at other types of imaging studies. And these are now included in the updated uh, classification criteria, which I think is really important. So this patient improves dramatically with an increase of the prednisone. I start tocilizumab, wean down the prednisone, 15 milligrams daily, she continues to feel clinically well, but her sed rate and CRP increase on repeat tests. So what do you want to do? Do you want to monitor her clinically? Do you want to get some large vessel imaging? Or do you want to increase her prednisone back to the 20 milligrams that she was just on that was effective and repeat her labs on that dose? So there are a couple of people want to do all of these different things. Um, in, in this case, what I would recommend doing is to get large vessel imaging. Now, the way that we're diagnosing a GCA right now, the majority of us are doing temporal artery biopsies. And again, that is sort of our gold standard. Um, but I just talked about some of the difficulties with, with interpretation and how there are issues with uh, temporal artery biopsies as well. Um, Europeans are doing more temporal artery ultrasound um, because there is higher exp expertise there, but we are sort of integrating that into fast-track clinics and getting more training here. Um, but only about 50% of people are doing large vessel imaging at, at the time of diagnosis. Now, the recommendations uh, from the ACR and VF are that we do non-invasive vascular imaging of the large vessels um, in any newly diagnosed GCA patient. I mean, they go so far as to say that we should do it even in suspected GCA with a negative biopsy. Now, I decide to do that based on pretest probability and what my clinical suspicion for the disease, but we really should be getting baseline large vessel imaging in these patients with GCA. We know that um, there can be involvement of the bilateral subclavians, the axillaries, and, and Dr. Spear also mentioned that you know people can get um, aneurysms and dissection of the thoracic and aortic abdomen, um, or <laughs> thoracic and abdominal aorta at even five or 10 years out after their diagnosis. 
Um, extracranial involvement is seen in up to 80% of GCA patients, and so we really need to be looking for this, um, because by the time you're hearing some of the bruise, some of the damage has already been done. How do we diagnose it? Now, in my pre-learn slides, I, I went into a lot more detail on the different imaging modalities for um, evaluating large vessel involvement in GCA, and I just put a couple pictures up here. We've got PET scans, we've got CTAs, we've got MRAs. Now, conventional angiography has been really replaced by these non-invasive imaging modalities, unless you're really trying to do some sort of specific intervention. Um, so PET scans, again, hard to, hard to get coverage for, but they can show nice uh, lighting up throughout the large vessels um, and respond quickly to treatment. Um, that's one of the hard parts. Once you get the PET approved, they've probably been on prednisone a while, and a lot of times their PET activity is going to decrease. CT angiography is what I tend to use in, in trying to look for large vessel involvement in my GCA patients. You're going to see concentric um, inflammation or thickening around the blood vessel wall. Um, and then MRAs can show areas of stenosis. They're a little better at picking up edema enhancement and active inflammation um, than CTAs, but I use MRA more primarily in my um, Takayasu's patients. So I generally tend to use CT angiography. All of these can add different types of information to your assessment. You don't need all of them, but they do add complementary different types of information. And here's just sort of a, a take-home chart sort of to look at the different pros and cons of these different imaging modalities. Again, angiography isn't used very much. Ultrasound um, is very operator dependent, but I think that we are getting more adept at using it both in PMR and in GCA, which is great. Um, CT angiography, uh, you have your high radiation, but it's quick. And then MRA, um, you know, there's a couple of contraindications there, but it's a little bit better at picking up active inflammation. PET scans are really good at picking up active inflammation and looking for malignancies, um, but they're very expensive. So my take-home points are that ultrasound findings of subacromial and deltoid bursitis and biceps tendonitis actually increase the specificity for diagnosing PMR. PMR patients have elevated circulating levels of IL-6, and this is correlated with disease activity as well as relapses, limb and jaw claudication, temporal artery abnormalities, AION, and prior PMR significantly increase the likelihood of a diagnosis of GCA. GCA patients should undergo a temporal artery biopsy, ideally within two weeks of initiating glucocorticoid therapy. Unilateral biopsies are okay. Um, sometimes there's a reason to do both sides. You want to make sure they're more than a centimeter. And then large vessel involvement is really under-recognized. It's something that should be assessed at baseline with non-invasive imaging modalities. If I see involvement at baseline, I am repeating these studies um, periodically, and we can talk about the nuances there. Um, but we need to be recognizing large vessel involvement. These patients have higher risks of developing those pretty serious complications down the road and often require higher doses of prednisone. And as you look at the options for treatment, uh, rituximab, methotrexate, or mycophenolate, mofetil, all of these could be options based upon the published experience. So that leaves azathioprine and cyclophosphamide. Um, azathioprine is a good maintenance option, but there's limited published experience for induction. And cyclophosphamide, while uh, an excellent agent that is effective, in this particular setting, the risks outweigh the benefits. And so while we do have these other options available, that would tend to make for me probably cyclophosphamide my least preferred choice out of all of these options. 
What this case really highlights is the fact that GPA is a multi-system disease that can have a spectrum of disease severity, where we can have organ and immediately life-threatening disease, such as alveolar hemorrhage or glomerulonephritis, and at the other end of the spectrum, active but non-severe disease that nevertheless still requires treatment uh, involving organs such as the sinuses, skin, and joint. And this does influence our treatment decisions. Now, the great news is that in 2023, we have a range of options that are available to us, raising the question about what to use and when. And when we think about this, treatment can be thought of as having two phases. Induction, where active disease is put into remission, followed by maintenance. And if we look at the induction side of the equation, we further stratify this based upon if the patient has severe or non-severe disease. In the case of our patient, there was non-severe disease present. And while rituximab is an option, there is also data with methotrexate or mycophenolate. Now, methotrexate was actually the first alternative to cyclophosphamide, which was first explored in the early 1990s. And this randomized trial from Europe in 100 patients compared cyclophosphamide to methotrexate and demonstrated that methotrexate was not inferior to cyclophosphamide for remission induction of non-severe disease. Mycophenolate mofetil has also been compared in patients with mild to moderate disease against cyclophosphamide. And uh, although there was similar rates of remission by six months, mycophenolate was associated with a slightly higher rate of relapse. Uh, but this does provide an option, particularly for patients who may not be able to take methotrexate and would prefer to not receive rituximab. So let's go on to a different patient. You're now asked to see a hospitalized 52-year-old male with a new diagnosis of GPA that's involving the sinus, skin, kidney with a creatinine of 2.5 milligrams per deciliter with an active urine sediment, and lung manifest with ground glass infiltrates on computed tomography who's requiring supplemental oxygen. So in addition to glucocorticoids and consideration of a vacapan, which of the following would be your first choice for treatment? Would you use methotrexate, mycophenolamophetyl, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, or a combination of rituximab and cyclophosphamide? All right, well, I think we're getting a pretty clear signal that the majority here would use rituximab um, by itself, not in combination with cyclophosphamide. So in contrast to the first patient we discussed, this is someone who has severe active GPA, manifest with glomerulonephritis and potentially alveolar hemorrhage. So in this setting, methotrexate and mycophenolate would not be good options as they are really used for induction of non-severe disease, plus methotrexate would be renally contraindicated here, which really leaves the other options. And uh, what I would probably consider was similar to what most of you said, which would be to use rituximab in glucocorticoids, or potentially with a vacapan. So again, we're looking at the induction side of the equation, but here a patient who has severe disease where our main options are cyclophosphamide or rituximab. 
Cyclophosphamide really changed the course of this disease. And while it's very effective as far as remission and induction, and in doing so allowed patient survival, it unfortunately does not prevent the occurrence of relapses. And as became recognized, there were risks of opportunistic infection and serious side effects. The options for remission induction for those with severe disease were really limited to cyclophosphamide until the introduction of rituximab, which was the focus of two randomized trials. In the RAVE trial, patients were randomized to either receive cyclophosphamide going to azathioprine or rituximab. These were patients who had severe disease, therefore justifying the use of cyclophosphamide, but the most seriously ill patients were excluded. At the primary endpoint of being in remission and off prednisone at six months, rituximab was found to be as effective as cyclophosphamide. And for those enrolled at the time of a relapse, there was a suggestion of even greater benefit with rituximab. There were similar rates of adverse events and infections and a low mortality rate. And based upon this similar effectiveness, this became the basis for FDA approval for rituximab of GPA and MPA in April of 2011. Now, the other randomized trial, which was published in the same New England Journal of Medicine, also compared rituximab to cyclophosphamide, but there were important differences which allowed us to learn several things. All patients received two doses of cyclophosphamide before they underwent randomization. And this was also designed as a superiority trial to try and determine if rituximab was, in fact, better than cyclophosphamide. Now, this was not found to be the case, although it did demonstrate similar rates of remission induction between these two agents. There were similar rates of adverse events. Uh, there was a higher rate of mortality, uh, including the fact that these were older patients that were enrolled with 20% on dialysis, both of which are risk factors for a poor outcome. So while rituximab was not superior to cyclophosphamide, it did once again appear to be as effective. Now, one thing I have heard about in recently more increasing terms has been what about combining cyclophosphamide and rituximab? And in addition to the data from the rituxvash trial, there have been a number of publications that have examined this regimen, with the main rationale being about the reduction of glucocorticoids, which has been an objective of which we've learned quite a bit more recently. Now, there are significant limitations and concerns with this experience. Uh, with the exception of the Rituxvast trial, most of these were retrospective, single-center, small-sample-size studies with variable degrees of disease severity and glucocorticoids. Of additional concern was the fact that there was fairly high rates of hypogammaglobulinemia, serious infections, and even mortality. So to my interpretation, the current data does not really support the upfront use of combined cyclophosphamide and rituximab. Uh, in my practice, certainly there are instances where I start with one and there is a necessity to go to the other, but I do not generally go in with a plan to combine these up front, and I'll work with the patient in deciding about which to use individually. So in considering as far as which of these choices to use, again, I think uh, there has been significant enough experience that rituximab is used in the vast majority of instances, certainly in settings of relapsing severe disease, newly diagnosed patients who are each end of the age spectrum, patients with cytopenias, urinary retention, malignancy, or infections. But there are still instances where cyclophosphamide plays an important role.
This includes in severe disease in patients with an intolerance to rituximab, potentially worsening severe disease despite rituximab. More controversial is those patients who have fulminant disease, so those who are excluded from the RAVE trial. And interestingly, although there was some discussion about considering this more during the COVID pandemic out of concern for vaccine response with rituximab, it should be noted that cyclophosphamide also suppresses antibody responses. Well, what about relapse after remission induction? And relapses can occur after either cyclophosphamide or rituximab, such that remission maintenance plans need to be considered in every patient. And that really brings us to the maintenance side of the equation, where we can see we have rituximab, but there are also conventional immunosuppressive options. Azathioprine was actually the focus of the first ever randomized trial to be conducted in ANCA-associated vasculitis, and it was compared to cyclophosphamide after cyclophosphamide induction. At the primary endpoint, which was relapse at 18 months, azathioprine was uh, no worse than cyclophosphamide in terms of the rate of relapse. And this demonstrated that this staged induction maintenance approach was able to lessen cyclophosphamide exposure without an increase in relapse rate. Since that time, there have been a number of randomized trials examining different maintenance approaches. In this trial, methotrexate was compared to azathioprine after cyclophosphamide induction and was found to have comparable rates of toxicity and relapse, demonstrating that in patients that were able to take methotrexate, the decision about which of these to use could be made between the patient and their physician. Azathioprine was also compared against mycophenolate mofetil after cyclophosphamide induction. And although there were similar rates of side effects, mycophenolate was associated with a higher rate of relapse. And although this can remain an option in selected patients, this tends to be lower down the list because of this higher rate of relapse compared with azathioprine. Now, the more recent option has been rituximab for remission maintenance, and this has been compared in a number of randomized trials conducted in France. In this first study, the Menritsen trial, rituximab was compared against azathioprine after cyclophosphamide induction, and it was found at the um, primary endpoint of major relapse at month 28. The rituximab was associated with a far lower rate of relapse as compared with azathioprine. And an important long-term study at month 60 follow-up, while rituximab was still superior, 42% had relapsed after treatment discontinuation, demonstrating that rituximab was more effective than azathioprine to maintain remission, but relapses still occurred after treatment was stopped. Another randomized trial examining rituximab for maintenance compared once again against azathioprine, but this time after rituximab induction, uh, similarly found rituximab was associated with a lower rate of relapse. While there was a similar rate of serious adverse events, hypogammaglobulinemia was seen, and in the long-term follow-up at 48 months, while rituximab retained its superiority, 50% of patients relapsed after treatment was stopped. Once again, demonstrating uh, superiority to azathioprine, the fact that relapses occurred after treatment was stopped, 
And although this trial utilized a dosage regimen of 1,000 milligrams of rituximab every four months, this did not demonstrate that this dosage schedule had a sustained effect of prolonging remission after treatment was discontinued. So in terms of the choice of agent for remission maintenance, rituximab, as mentioned, has been shown in two randomized trials to have a lower rate of relapse compared to azathioprine, with the largest body of data utilizing a dose of 500 milligrams every six months. But the main problem remains, relapses occur after rituximab is stopped, and the duration of rituximab treatment remains unclear. Concerns remain for toxicity with longer-term use, particularly hypogammaglobulinemia, and as we've seen, there is an impact on vaccine response. So one of the questions that often comes up is whether conventional agents, such as azathioprine, methotrexate, or mycophenolate, still have a place in maintenance, and to which I think the answer remains yes, after risks and benefits are weighed. The disadvantage is the higher rate of relapse compared to rituximab, but these are well-known therapies that have an established long-term side effect profile, such that in shared decision-making together with your patient, there may be times where a conventional agent may be preferred. Now, what about duration of remission maintenance therapies? Although most clinical trials are based upon 18 to 24 months of maintenance, as we all know, this is not a 24-month disease. And with either rituximab or conventional agents, the rate of relapse is higher off of treatment than on, such that maintenance beyond 24 months may be appropriate in many instances. So what I tell patients as far as is that in the absence of toxicity, they should plan to be on a maintenance regimen for two years after which time we consider together where to go from there, weighing in their relapse history. The presence of organ damage particularly is important, so if someone has had uh, renal insufficiency, that's someone I get nervous about taking off of their maintenance treatment. Toxicity, then of course patient preferences, compliance, and family planning. I do want to touch on the plasma exchange trial. Uh, the PEXAVAS study was the largest trial to be conducted in ANCA-associated vasculitis to date, enrolling 704 patients with severe disease. This study sought to examine the role not only of plasma exchange, but also of a reduced-dose glucocorticoid schedule, looking at the composite primary endpoint of end-stage renal disease or death. When examining plasma exchange, this was not found to reduce the risk of end-stage renal disease or death as compares to those who did not receive plasma exchange, although this may not rule out the possibility of benefit in those patients who had the most severe disease involvement. In terms of reduced-dose glucocorticoids, this was found to be non-inferior uh, with respect to end-stage renal disease or death compared to standard doses, and importantly was that reduced-dose glucocorticoids resulted in fewer serious infections, therefore demonstrating that patients uh, could do well with less glucocorticoids. So along those lines, our final question. Which of the following is an indication to consider a vacapan in GPA? Newly diagnosed severe active disease, non-severe disease relapse, as an alternative to rituximab for remission maintenance, a patient in remission having prednisone intolerance, or all of the above.
All right. Well, this is interesting. So majority is saying all of the above. All right. So let's uh, talk about Avacapan. So I was actually looking for a newly diagnosed severe active disease. So Avacapan is a small molecule inhibitor of the complement 5A receptor. And after two promising phase two studies demonstrating safety and also the ability to reduce glucocorticoids, this was the focus of a randomized trial in 330 newly diagnosed or relapsing patients with severe GPA or MPA. Patients received cyclophosphamide or rituximab either in combination with standard prednisone and a placebo for avacapan or alternatively avacapan and a placebo for prednisone. What was found was that avacapan was not inferior to prednisone for inducing remission at week 26. It was superior to prednisone for a sustained remission at week 52. And the safety of avacapan was favorable with the main toxicity to monitor for being hepatotoxicity. Now, there are a couple of things to keep in mind with this study. Although certainly this was less glucocorticoids than had previously been possible, this is not glucocorticoid-free. This was also a heavily renally-based population with 81% having glomerulonephritis and only 44% having upper airways disease. So there are some important future questions about whether avacapan will be equally effective for all disease features, what should be the duration of avacapan as the clinical trial stopped treatment at 52 weeks, what about its use for severe disease and use for maintenance in place of other agents. But on the basis of this clinical trial, Avacapan received FDA approval in October of 2021 for the indication of patients with severe active ankyl-associated vasculitis in combination with standard therapy. And this remains the only setting in which there has been published experience. So how do I use Avacapan? Uh, again, I use it in the setting of active severe disease in patients who are either newly diagnosed or relapsing. I'll begin cyclophosphamide or rituximab together with glucocorticoids and ideally try to initiate the Avacapan as soon as possible in the active course, followed by a rapid glucocorticoid taper. <clears throat> 